we do what? I will not. Be your best self. Can I be real a second? For just a millisecond? It seems like there's a simpler approach to that problem. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's a tough nutcracker. I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I feel as though we are trapped in a witch's curse for all eternity. I don't know how to tell you this. (laughs) But on the day of our wedding, a witch cursed me. (laughs) And that is why we have a Downton Abbey podcast now. Wow. Well, who knew? Not me. Uh, it was Maggie Smith. <laughs> she is a witch. And what, you know, and we didn't invite her. I know. So that was her mistake. Uh, anyway. Not uh, that she would have come, but she would have appreciated the invitation. I know. Also, if I had pricked my finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel, Baron Fellows would have canceled Downton Abbey after the third series. <laughs> so I really let everyone down. Yeah. Well, you're not much for spinning. No, I'm certainly not. Or any of the womanly arts. <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. <laughs> Welcome. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. And what a treat mm-hmm. have we for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is this podcast. It is this podcast. That's it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't think they were expecting much of a surprise. I but certainly hope not. Yeah. It's this podcast. It's this perfectly pleasant episode of Downton. Yeah. It's not as good as the one before it. No. But uh, uh, this is fine also. Yeah. Before we get into that, we do have our Cousin of the Week. Cousin Tori writes, Dear Kelly and Tom, I thought I would write in with a small bit of Downton trivia I'm pretty sure you've forgotten. You keep saying how Mrs. Hughes' sister came out of nowhere in the end of Season 5 when she told Carson about the situation. While I agree this is mostly true, as Fellows had almost certainly not invented the tragic side story of the Hughes family, the sister did not 100% come out of nowhere, just 98%, scientifically accurate. (laughs) Way back in season one in the episode where Mrs. Hughes caught up with her farmer suitor, at one point the staff sees them out together and Daisy wonders if it's Mrs. Hughes' brother, but Thomas says that Mrs. Hughes has a sister is all. How Thomas knew anything that it seems Carson did not shall remain a mystery, but it's season one Thomas, so that's something. Like you, sometime after season five, I went back and watched some early Downton and I was surprised to see that mention as, like you, I had assumed that story came out of nowhere, but no, just very near it. And I agree also that seasons one and two and a good chunk of three feel like such a different show than the mess we're seeing by and in season six. Hell, at this point, I'd probably say Murder Prison 1 was better than any version we've had since then. (laughs) For now, I guess there's still a few weeks of this before I need to pull out the old poking stick for the Mr. Selfish reviews, but most likely we'll see you then. (laughs) Tori. P.S. New thought. A poking stick would be a handy thing for a pig man, right? Maybe Andy is stick boy all grown up and looking for his true calling. This thought will likely make him also being in rooms much funnier to me from now on. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Cousin Tori. Congratulations on becoming Cousin of the Week. Mm -hmm. If you would like to enter in the fray (laughs) for Cousin of the Week, you can send us a carrier pigeon. We're at five Maggie Smiths. That's at five, the number five on Twitter. We're up yours downstairs at gmail.com if you'd like to send an old-fashioned telegram. And you can also just search up yours downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. You sure can. So that's that. That is. There's Let only, us yeah. drive not too fast. Yeah. Let's drive carefully and sedately forward yes. into this recap. 
So we start with a uh, clever shot panning from some uh, pastoral flowers up to some racing cars. And uh, we see somebody timing them. Matthew Good pulls up and Billy tells him that Rogers beat him by 3.5 seconds. Rogers tells him to take it like a man. Matthew Good asks if he wants a drink and Rogers agrees. At breakfast, Lord Grantham reads a letter and says it's very nice. Edith asks what it is, and he says that Mary's beau has invited them all to Brooklyn's. Mary is dismayed in the background, and Edith says that he is just sucking up. But Mary says, McGee won't Lord Grantham go. He doesn't see why not. Mary says he's still convalescing, but Lord Grantham says he only wants to watch. This doesn't get at the insane amount of mugging that Branson and Lord Grantham are doing in this scene. You're right. Like, this whole scene is this very boring, oh, I say, we're all going... Like, I feel like there was a point in this show where they would have all just been at Brooklyn's. Yeah. And we wouldn't get most of all of this. Yeah, that's possible. Although I'm not... Well, I don't know. It seems so long ago now that well, I Well, there's keep... not manners anymore. Well, right. I don't know why anyone cares. <laughs> yeah. Edith says that it's a long trip to make and that the cars will only be racing for like 10 minutes. But Branson says he heard birdies invited. Edith says, oh. <laughs> Mary says that she's talked herself into it, though she's sure she'll be sorry. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's that's fairly true. And then Lord Grantham, Lord Grantham raises his glass to Branson. Yeah. Uh, has Branson been lobotomized? Um, it's, this episode seems to indicate yes. That's definitely on the table. In the kitchen, Daisy is excited that Pat Moore is now the owner of a bed and breakfast. Andy, who is also there, says what we haven't done as if he was at all involved. He was not. No. Well, he was probably in the room <laughs> at some point. Right. Pat Moore says that she turned one of the bedrooms into a bathroom and installed an inside privy, and which leaves two rooms to let and one for her niece to live in. Daisy says that room will be Pat Moore's when the time comes, and Pat Moore doesn't really appreciate the reminder of her impending mortality. <laughs> Hughes comes in and says, now all Patmore needs are clients. And Patmore asks how married life is, and Hughes says fine, except that Karsten wants to dine at the cottage again. Patmore says she can rustle up something, but Hughes says whatever she does rustle up, Hughes will cook it wrong, or the plates will be cold, or something like that. Daisy asks if Karsten appreciates all that Hughes does. Hughes says, does any man? Mosley comes in to tell Daisy. probably does. Yeah. Mosley seems pretty feminist as far as it goes. Yeah, it's true. It's just nobody ever quite notices him. Yeah. Or that he is a man. Right. So he comes in to tell Daisy that the exam will be on the 20th. Daisy says, oh my God. She says it's so funny. She's yeah. like, oh my God. <laughs> like, yeah. we've never heard her say anything in this tone before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hughes asks her not to take the Lord's name in vain. And Daisy hopes it isn't in vain. She'll need all the help she can get. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> At the Dower House, the Dowager Countess is reading an invitation for Isabel to Crookshank's wedding. Which is, uh, according to the invitation in Streply, a location which I do not think exists, as when I googled it, the first thing that comes up, it is an entry in the Downton Wiki. Fascinating. Yeah. The Dowager Countess asks if Isabel enjoys weddings, and Isabel says, yes, but she won't be going. She'd feel like the Wicked Fairy in Sleeping Beauty. Oh, hey. Yeah. She must have been subconsciously thinking of that. I guess so. One thing that I think about Downton Abbey, there was that point in The Simpsons, like right around like season nine or ten, when they became very culturally literate, mm. like whereas to me, previous to that, Springfield kind of existed in a place out of time, right? But then it became much more 
Yeah, current. yeah, yeah. And I feel like in a weird way that is part of what's happened to Downton Abbey. Mm. And that's what started happening after the third series is that they started dropping all these pop culture references, mm. which is fine. And I'm sure people may have spoken like that, but it, yeah. it just gives it this weird flavor that I'm not sure that I like. Yeah. Anyway, just the thought that I had. Yeah. This is not the last of these references that get dropped. Right. The Dowager Countess asks why Larry would want Isabel there, and Isabel assumes Murdy must have persuaded him. But the Dowager doubts that. She thinks that it was Crookshank. And she says that Miss Crookshank is always the one making a show of friendship. She says she's going to pay a call on Crookshank. And Isabel says she's sorry that she even showed the Dowager the invitation. But the Dowager says not to be. She then changes the subject and asks if things are going well in her former kingdom, i.e. the hospital. Mm -hmm. Isabel says that McGee's settling in, but it must be awkward for the Dowager. And the Dowager says, uh, actually, very classily, that she's yesterday and McGee is tomorrow, and that's the way it is. Isabel says that the Dowager must be feeling hurt regardless. And the Dowager says, to be honest, she is angry at the way she was treated. Isabel doesn't blame her. Uh, but the Dowager says that while she's angry, she says things some people find hard to forgive. Yeah. So she has decided to go away and vent her rage on the desert air and return when she can control her tongue. Isabel says, and I couldn't tell how sarcastic right. she was being. I know. Because she says her self-knowledge is an example to them all. But I'm like, that actually is a very good plan. Yeah, it certainly I, is also sometimes say things people find hard to forgive when I'm angry. So... No. The Dowager asks Isabel if uh, Isabel thinks that she's wrong. Like the and Dowager couldn't tell her how sarcastic yeah. she was either. Isabel says the last thing that she needs is to quarrel with Lord Grantham and McGee at this stage in all of their lives. And the Dowager agrees but says that she'll call on Miss Crookshank before she leaves. Isabel suspects that Miss Crookshank is a tough nut to crack. But the Dowager says that she, the Dowager, is quite a tough nut cracker, mm -hmm. which is fabulous. Yes. Full marks for that scene. Mm-hmm. In the servants' hall, they all rise. Andy asks Daisy how Mason is, and he's always ready to help. Daisy says that she's going down this afternoon and will inform Mason of that fact. In the hall, Thomas tells Carson that he's trying to find a position, and Carson says he doesn't doubt it, but he says it doesn't seem fair on Lord Grantham to string it out. Uh, what about Thomas? <laughs> he's the one who's really getting strung along. He certainly is. Thomas asks if that means he's sacked. Carson says it means that Carson will be very pleased when he learns the identity of Thomas's next Why don't employer. they just sack him? I don't understand why they don't just sack him. This because is worse. Then they couldn't have the same conversation and fill out a scene in an episode every week the entire Ugh. season. All right. <laughs> in the library, Lord Grantham explains that they will stay with Rosamond, drive to the track, have lunch, see some racing, and then come home. McGee says it seems unnecessary in his state. And Lord Grantham says the only state he's in is of boredom. Hmm. <laughs> right. McGee says it's not her decision, which then why is he acting like it is? Yeah. But Lord Grantham says that if she means that, then they're going to go. Branson asks if Edith's coming. She is if Bertie is. Lord Grantham says it's a long way for him. Edith says maybe there's something else for him to do in London. Mary asks if it isn't enough for him to see Edith. And Edith asks if it would annoy her if it was. And Mary looks taken aback. Yeah. Like, you know, you weren't supposed to answer Edith. Yeah. <laughs> Out back, Hughes walks up to Thomas carrying a bunch of dead flowers or something. Um, but she says that she's sorry if Carson spoke harshly. It just worries him when a plan is delayed. Thomas points out that the 
plan is his departure and crushes out his cigarette. Hughes says that uh, Thomas hasn't found the right person yet, but she's sure there are friends out there waiting for him, and a new job and a new house may help him find them. And I'm like, do you mean friends or do you mean friends? Wink! It's very unclear. <laughs> no, I know. This is an episode full of people saying things where you're like, what? Yeah. Do you mean? Mm-hmm. Thomas says that Downton is the first place he's found where he's actually laid down some roots and walks off. Well, that may be true, dude, but you've also not done a great job of maintaining those roots. This is true. The Dowager rides up to Murdy House, and a servant goes up to Crookshank in the garden. Inside, Crookshank enters and apologizes and says that nobody told her the Dowager was coming, and Murdy is out. The Dowager says she came to see Miss Crookshank. Miss Crookshank says, how flattering, and asks if she can offer her anything. And the Dowager says, only your attention... Shall I sit here <laughs> pointing out uh, Crookshank's many failures as a hostess? <laughs> Crookshank can't say no. The Dowager says she heard Crookshank invited Isabel to the wedding and was amazingly friendly. Crookshank, oh, she's always friendly. She's very much smiley in this scene. Yeah. Um, the Dowager says nobody's always friendly and notes that Crookshank has... Sorry, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. She said that she heard that Crookshank visited Isabel. Now she's, she's getting to the wedding invitation. Yeah. Um, and the wedding invitation has taken her by surprise. And Crookshank says again how Isabel and Larry haven't always seen eye to eye. The dowager gets real. Yeah. And she's like, can I be real a second for just a millisecond? <laughs> she says that Larry has spoken to Isabel in a manner that in any other century would have resulted in him being called out and shot. Yeah. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So great. Yeah. Uh, Miss Crookshank can't believe it was that bad, and she keeps trying to mm-hmm. keep it light, and oh, it's no big deal, but right. the Dowager will not let it go, mm-hmm. and she says that Miss Crookshank is misinformed. Mm-hmm. But what she wants to know is why Crookshank is encouraging Isabel when Larry detests her. Crookshank disputes that, but would say that Larry had perhaps not quite thought matters through, which is the beginning of Crookshank hanging herself. Yeah. Because she, all she had to do was basically not answer this. Right. Not but, give any truthful answer. Right. But she gives the Dowager enough room to crack that nut. Right. Because the Dowager, you know, set it all up, came when she wasn't expecting her, got her off balance, up the ante of the conversation and Crookshank is just reeling at this point. Mm-hmm. The Dowager says meaning and Crookshank says that Murty is old and alone and in need of the Dowager says in need of care. Crookshank smiles, but then the Dowager adds, which you are not prepared to give. Crookshank finally stops smiling, <laughs> says she would have said a companion. And the Dowager says, which you are not prepared to be. And the Dowager asks whether Miss Crookshank is willing to surrender the house to be free of Murdy. And Crookshank says she won't want to li- that Isabel won't want to live there after Murdy dies. It would be lonely for a woman like her. The Dowager brings the thunder. <laughs> but by heaven, I bet it won't be too lonely for a woman like you. I expect they'll have to drag you out as you break your fingernails catching at the door case. Uh, the Dowager sums everything up in case we haven't been following along. Crookshank <laughs> wants a free nurse to take a tiresome old man off of her hands. The Dowager says that she's a cruel little miss and she'd feel sorry for Larry if she didn't dislike him so much. 
Crookshank says she'll forget the dowager said that, but she should go much more, and they might feel awkward if they should meet, which they are bound to do. I should think not, says the dowager countess. Not if I see you first. Boom! Boom. Drop the mic. Dowager out. That (laughs) was... Man. This was a return to motherfucking form. Yeah. Because what this show has been lacking... Are these scenes where the dowager is right and everyone is wrong? Yeah, yeah. Which is the point of his conservative worldview, <laughs> right? I mean, I realize you know it's not like they can continue living in some upper crust fantasia. Sure, sure. But it's like, why wasn't there more of this than her being stupid about the hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, she likes the old ways of doing things, but she is adaptable, right? When it just shows why so many of her lines that were attempted, you know, booms just didn't land all season because her position was just so unsound. Mm-hmm. Now that she's in, now that she's on firm ground, yeah. she can like lay it down and Absolutely. it's fantastic. It's as good as it ever was in this scene. Uh, amazing. Yeah. Hopefully she'll get nominated for an Emmy again. <laughs> I was sad she didn't get nominated this year. Like, <laughs> yeah. I know it's right. Like, right. I know. She ha- has enough Emmys. <laughs> she probably just has a whole like gardening shed full of them. <laughs> I wonder if I left that in the Emmy drawer. <laughs> in the servants hall, Carson says they may have heard the family will be away for three days. So if any of them feel they're owed some time off, they could take it then. Wait. They're owed more time off than the time off they get. Like, they're a startup at this point. They're like, oh, unlimited vacation and sick time. Flex schedule. Bye. Show up when you want. Yeah. You know, just work on what you're passionate about. You can work from, you can cook from home. (laughs) Pat Moore says quietly to Hughes that she has put in her advertisement and Hughes says now it's time to wait. Carson asks what's up, and Hughes explains about the B&B. Carson says that was quick, and Hughes agrees. Patmore says she's got butterflies, but Hughes says not to be silly. Patmore will check in on the B&B. You can still have butterflies without being silly. I agree. She's just excited and nervous. Mm Mm-hmm. She's going to check in on it when the family is gone, so Hughes says she'll join her. Thomas says, boy, everybody's got something to do on their free days except him. Carson says they know what he's got to do. And Thomas says, yes, Mr. Carson. I just don't like how mean they've made Carson. Yeah. You know, he's crusty and he's stiff, but he's not straight up cruel. I agree. (sighs) I don't know. I know. I agree. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lens where he is just like feeling you know upset because he's been given a command that he can't fill out yet you know like he can't do that and yeah but i mean generally like even like the private stuff but just the the shaming him in front of everybody yeah like it's one thing for them to be talking about it privately Mm. in their one-on-ones right but for him to say that in front of the entire staff yeah is gross yeah i agree i agree Spratt is examining some stamps, <laughs> which we already discussed. Yeah. Uh, when Danker Dankson to say something takes the biscuit, which I was not aware was a phrase. Well, yeah. Uh, Spratt asks if she's going to tell him what's going on. And Danker says the, d- the dowager has decided to sail for the south of France when the family are in London. Spratt says she can't do that. <laughs> 
it's very rare that I agree with Danker, but Danker's right. She yeah. says perhaps he'll pop up and tell the Dowager that she can't do that. <laughs> Spread asks what happens to Danker, and she says she's going along with the Dowager Countess, which, I mean, come on, duh, guys. Yeah, like, did you just join service yesterday? <laughs> right. Danker talks about strolling along the Quasette, which is the seaside road in Cannes, dining in Juan Le Pi. Juan Le Pi? Pan, I think. Juan Le Pan. Pan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it is a fancy town. In Antibes. Okay, I was like, I am not going to even try that one. No, I understand. You're the one who pronounces things. Well, I looked all these up. I know you did. <laughs> Sprat asks, what about Sprat? Which is stupid, because Sprat, you know what your house job is, and yeah. it is being in the house. Yeah, and also, have you not missed the memo here? Danker will be gone. Yeah, you can finally live your goddamn life <laughs> free of dank. Be your best self. <laughs> Danker less kindly tells him he will be here sticking in stamps. Spratt says the dowager is going to sneak off while the family is away. Danker says that she doesn't sneak. She'll leave the sneaking to Spratt. <laughs> okay. The bell rings and Danker says she has to dank off. There's so much to do. In her bedroom, McGee tells Baxter that it's a nuisance. Two dinners, neither very grand, and she rolls her eyes. Clothes for Brooklyn's. Can't she not go? You would think. Like, honestly. come on. Yeah. Just send the rest of those idiots and you have, <laughs> you and Sprat hang out and get your grooves back. Yeah, agreed. Call up Mr. Bricker. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have the house to myself. <laughs> Ow. Well. Baxter laughs and says, very good. Uh, Lord Grantham comes in and says he's sorry if McGee isn't keen. McGee says that she's just worried about getting Matthew Good's hopes up. Is that what, really? Anyway, <sighs> Lord Grantham says that he likes the fellow, and McGee does too, but doesn't think a professional driver would make McGee, or would make Mary happy. Sybil maybe, but not Mary. I mean, Sybil did marry a professional driver. Yeah. Like, what do you mean, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like Clearly that he made her very happy. It's been proven definitively. Until your husband killed her. <laughs> Right. Lord Grantham says, that's the whole point. What does Matthew Good have when poor old Tony's land and coronet didn't appeal to Mary? Maybe she didn't like the coronet. Like, Lord Grantham, like, you can just be friends with Gilly. Like, just... <laughs> <laughs> this is like on Jane the Virgin when Jane and Michael broke up and Rogelio just wanted to keep hanging out with Michael. Yeah, yeah. He says, McGee might say that it's Matthew Good's sex appeal, but isn't Mary too sensible for that? I don't think anyone's too sensible for sex appeal. That's why we keep having sex. Right. If you look at sex, just on the... Fi I remember when I found out about sex mm -hmm. and was horrified. I was <laughs> yeah. like, we do what? <laughs> I will not. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, hormones, man. Yeah. And then I was like, well, that seems good. Yeah. Life, Let's do that. Life uh, finds a way. McGee <laughs> <laughs> um, says that they have a very contrary daughter. Lord Grantham says, anyway, he's never been motor racing. And McGee rolls her eyes. Poor McGee. Yeah. Man, she's just got nothing to do except for, I guess, now run the hospital and make cat pillows. But... Right. Yeah. So, you know. We are not seeing that, but we can assume that she's busy working. I mean, working I, liked, and... I liked her contributions to the hospital storyline. Yeah, It's just yeah. not particularly juicy for her. Right, right. Although, really, there's not much in the way of juice left. Yeah, that's true. You can't wring, you know, juice from a stone at this point. Right. 
or you know from something that you've already wrung the juice all the juice out of two years ago true yeah in her bedroom mary says anna will have to take the train there won't be room in the cars uh to brooklyn's yeah and she says that bates is anna says bates is looking forward to it mary wishes she was anna correctly points out she doesn't have to go mary thinks she does it's part of matthew good she's got to get used to it uh questionable do you i don't know matthew was like you really don't have to are you also dating (laughs) like i'm very confused as to where you stand oh they kissed so you know in an alley (laughs) like call me when they kiss in front of people (laughs) anna says that it sounds serious mary supposes anna doesn't approve anna says that it's not for her to approve mary asks if she does and anna says matthew good seems nice she's just not sure that she and mary's lives fit together she doesn't mean to offend mary but mary's not offended she's troubled because she knows what anna means anna says that they say opposites attract mary says yes but do they live happily ever after after all a bird may love a fish monsieur but where would they live Down in Servant's Hall, Mosley closes a book and thinks he'll go up. Baxter, who is sewing some cat pillows that McGee couldn't get around to. <laughs> well, was- she's got to go to Brooklyn's now. Right. That's why she's so annoyed. <laughs> All this hospital work is really cutting into her cat pillow embroidering time. <laughs> uh, Baxter asks how Mosley revises, i.e. studies, if he's being tested on general knowledge. Mosley doesn't really know, but he feels like he ought to, you know, study something. She asks if it's important, and he says that it's important he doesn't feel a fool. Baxter says, she's the fool. Uh, Mosley asks why, and she says because she still can't decide what to do about Coyle. Boo! <laughs> Wrong answer! <laughs> there was literally any answer she could have given that I would have accepted that isn't this answer. Yeah, Mosley, like all of us, can't see why it's so hard to decide. She says maybe if she testified in court, but that never happened. And the story feels unfinished. Which, no, it doesn't feel unfinished. It feels pointless. (laughs) There is no point to the story. (sighs) Mosley says it sounds like Baxter's going to go see him. She says that she needs to be sure he has no power over her anymore. So, yeah. Answering his summons sounds like a good way to prove he has no power over you. I agree. Yeah. Coming at his call. This is just healthy relationships 101. (laughs) Mosley asks her to tell him when she decides. Well, but he's actually mad at this point. Yeah. Like, Mosley has finally just been like, bitch. Yeah. You better read my blog. (laughs) Cheerful lower class music plays as Andy, who looks like a young Michael Sheen to me, if we haven't already said this. Oh, all right. Yeah. Uh... He's wearing his pig outfit, walks down the lane to Pig Farm. Inside, Mason pours him some tea while saying he hoped Andy could bring the books up to date a bit. Now, my main question is how are there books on this farm that he's just like, did he inherit the books? I think what he's referring to is the accounting. That's what I mean. Okay, yeah. Like, well, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Well, yeah, it's not clear. Yeah, you know what? I have no idea how far accounting works. And also, shouldn't the estate agent be the one handling the books? Well, I would assume that the estate agent would be, like, collecting reports on a regular basis. Right, but this is but, actually their pigs. Right. Like, he's got a tenancy. Right. But he No, I is, know. I was just saying that I was assuming that among his responsibility would be maintaining the pig farm record that the estate agent would, would regularly collect. And well, anyway, my point is bringing them up to date. Right. That like, is a good point. You weren't responsible for them before. Right. 
that I suspect Pigman was a pretty sharp, you know, he was a volunteer fireman. I'm thinking he knows how to handle <laughs> accounting. Anyway, Andy uh, tries to deflect and says that he could handle some of the heavy stuff, you know, the lifting, the things that his illiterate ass is good at. <laughs> right. Mason says there's nothing that he can't do until they separate the piglets, but he's got to get on top of the figures. When can Andy come do that? And like, then why did he come right. he's, now? He's there at the moment. And he's like, I don't know. Uh, how long does it take to learn to read from a gay underbutler? <laughs> but what he really says is he's busy just now. And Mr. Mason is like pissed. Yeah. He's like, okay, yeah. well, I guess let me know. Like my dumb daughter-in-law was like, he's all hot to trot for pig farm. Right. Like if you don't want to help me, that's fine. But you know. Don't offer to help me. Yeah. Honor your commitments. Mm-hmm. The Dower House, Isabel is surprised to hear that the Dowager is leaving today. She's, Dowager says she'll spend the night in London and sail on the SS Paris tomorrow and cruise around the Mediterranean and stay with the Brahms in Cannes, who keep asking her over. Isabel says she'll be surrounded by foreigners. The Dowager says that her reason for traveling is to be eager to come home and a month among the French should do it. I just love her efficiency in this episode. <laughs> yeah. She's operating at like full Hermione right now. <laughs> yeah. Isabel asks if Lord Grantham will be hurt, and the Dowager says not as much as if he knew why, and she gives Isabel a note to give Lord Grantham. Isabel asks how they can reach her, and she says that she has written to Branson as he is the most sensible. Uh, she adds that she called on Crookshank, and Crookshank wants Isabel to take Murdy off her hands, and Isabel's choice is harder now. Before, she didn't want to come between Murdy and Larry, but now she must decide whether to abandon him to his selfish and greedy children. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, this is real. Yeah. This is some serious realness. It is. Isabel says it's still a tug of war she doesn't want to be part of. Uh, but the Dowager says that when she takes delivery from Miss Amelia, she'll be lucky if she gets a Christmas card. Uh, I don't know what that sentence means. Right. If, I think it was like just sort of some sort of like, oh, you know, some sort of understatement thing. I don't know what takes delivery means. I don't know either. I mean, my point is, you know... Amelia's a bitch. Right. So that's what we know for sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that might make more sense to a British person. I don't know. Mrs. Hughes leaves the Patmore B&B and asks if Patmore can be ready by tomorrow. Mrs. Patmore says it's just one couple. Mrs. Hughes says the house is beautiful, but there's a lot to think about. She asks if she'll offer dinner, but Mrs. Patmore says no, they can go to the pub, but she'd like to make a thing of her breakfasts. Mrs. Hughes says that she'll manage that easily enough, and Mrs. Patmore says that she'll be back tomorrow, but should she come Thursday morning, the family will still be in London. Mrs. Hughes has no objection, because why would she? Yeah. Mrs. Patmore suggests that tomorrow night, Mrs. Hughes can have dinner with Carson. Mrs. Hughes supposes it would be nice to eat at a normal time, which if you're in service, like, doesn't the time that you eat just become the normal time? Yeah, I don't know. Mrs. Patmore says you could and you couldn't because <gasps> I've had an idea. Oh. She has a cunning plan. <laughs> At E, the Edith magazine, uh, <laughs> Edith walks in and the new editor greets her. Edith says that she's not really there. She's racing at Brooklyn's tomorrow and thought she'd pop in. I like how everybody says, oh, we're racing at Brooklyn, but you're not. You're <laughs> going to look at the racing. Right. She asks what's new, and the editor says they've had an offer. A Miss Cassandra Jones suggested an advice column. Editor says her examples are funny. Your husband is losing interest? Well, here's step one. Take a look in the mirror. Oh, snap, Cassandra Jones. Yeah. Uh, editor, who is wearing glasses now, mm -hmm. uh, she didn't in her job interview because she's no fool, uh, suggests they write some uh, fake questions, let her write some answers, and see how the public likes it. 
She says there's nothing new in an agony column, but they're very popular in America. Edith asks if they should interview Cassandra, and the editor says they should leave it for now, uh, but she thinks it's worth a try. She then mentions that she's never seen racing close up, and Edith says her sister's new boyfriend drives, and why not come? Editor's not sure she should, but Edith says that she is the boss, so if she says it's fine, it's fine, and says that the editor can meet her family if you're strong enough. Now I'm stronger than yesterday. That musical interlude brings us to our first recurring segment, Fashion Backwards with our own smoking smarty, Callie. Hello. Thank you, Tom. (laughs) Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about cigarettes. Okay. And their place in 1925. Uh, so as we all know, cigarette smoking was frowned upon for women and children, uh, basically up until World War One uh-huh. or the post-war years, mm-hmm. uh, still relatively frowned upon for children. <laughs> right. Um, but it was after World War One that women really started smoking regularly and in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and really smoking in public didn't catch on until after World War One. Prior to World War One, tobacco use was still more or less confined to pipes and cigars. Mm-hmm. Um, cigarettes were considered effeminate. Hmm. It's so weird to me because so cigarettes were considered effeminate for men, but too manly for women. No. Um, which just from a capitalism perspective, <laughs> you'd think somebody would have, you know, figured this out before then. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. um, so in the trenches, you know, cigarettes were currency and this was one of the first wars where this was really true. Although they did actually have a, um, the British army mm-hmm. had a tobacco ration during the Crimean war as well. Oh, okay. Um, but every soldier was allocated two ounces of tobacco and it was very shitty tobacco. I believe it. Um, because of the Turkish alliance with Germany, they couldn't get Turkish, uh, tobacco. Mm-hmm. So this has another effect that I'll get into in just a second. Okay. Um, so, the concept of cigarettes as this currency, they were something for the men to do, to occupy their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a way of building camaraderie with your fellow soldiers. Uh, so, they all, you know, started rolling cigarettes and hanging out and all this kind of thing. Um and also, it was really too difficult to keep your tobacco dry in the trench, mm. uh, dry enough to put in a pipe. Uh-huh. And so rolling them in, you know, individually into cigarettes helped kind of protect them from that dampness. Uh-huh. Um, so all these men developed, you know, an addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this became very popular after the war. Now, the other thing that happened during the war, because this Turkish uh, ban, mm-hmm. uh, ban on Turkish tobacco made tobacco milder the tobacco that they were using mm. for cigarettes probably from america i would, I was, would guess yeah. uh it's milder so the it was milder tasting and kind of lighter mm. so it appealed more to women mm. um but they didn't really start advertising and marketing cigarettes to women until the 1920s mm-hmm. and I learned a lot of really interesting stuff about this kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and as we all know, you know, cigarettes have always been marketed to women as, you know, an alternative to snacking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the very first uh, woman-focused ads was from Lucky Strike that said, uh, reach for a strike instead of a sweet. Mm-hmm. And their package was green. Oh. And they did market research and they found out that women hated the color green. <laughs> So what they did was they had a whole big party 
this huge soiree and invited all of the fashion editors and basically everything was green. Um, you know, they had all these green clothes, like they just, they mounted this insane, like brainwashing campaign. Wow. And all because they didn't want to change the color no, of their packaging. Like it seems like there's a simpler approach to that problem. But they really, really liked it green. Wow. Uh, even though, you know, 50% of their target market disagreed <laughs> with them. Um, and then, uh, there is, I think they called them, uh, torches for freedom. Okay. They had a very hard time getting women convinced that they could smoke in front of other people. Mm. So they, um, I think this was, I can't remember if it was Lucky Strike or if it was Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the big tobacco companies, this is in America, mm-hmm. paid 10 debutantes to walk down the street smoking cigarettes as a sort of like show of support for women's suffrage and, and like, <laughs> yeah. just like, Oh, you're all independent. Um, and statistically, and this is true even today. So any country that is kind of sort of developing, um, and their gender roles are changing. Women smoke at a higher rate. Whereas mm-hmm. like in currently developed countries, obviously smoking rates are falling there, mm-hmm. but in developing countries where a lot of the men smoke, as women become more equal, they want to partake in that as well. There mm-hmm. is this still this very um, pervasive idea that it's it's very uh, bold and independent uh-huh, and uh-huh. I don't need a man kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so they marketed all these things. You know, they would have, you know, cigarettes with special colored tips, all that kind of thing to appeal to women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the trend just kind of kept going. Once you get into World War Two, right. um, cigarettes have that same association. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know, once the science started coming out about the link to lung cancer, mm-hmm. you know, then that's when you kind of. I mean, obviously, it took a really long time. Right, right. That was the beginning of that. But prior to that, it was just like, oh, it's dirty. Mm, like mm-hmm. that was why women weren't supposed to do it. It was just vaguely dirty. Uh huh. Um, you know, basically, like anything. Yeah. That women might do. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is uh, why we see Miss Cassandra Jones. Sorry, not Miss Cassandra Jones. <laughs> right. The editor. Yeah. Miss Edmonds. Edmonds. Uh, she's smoking a cigarette, yeah. and I noticed you just sort of. Uh, Throughout this season, yeah. you've just seen a lot more of the young people uh, casually having cigarettes, mm-hmm. where basically nobody smoked anything but cigars uh-huh. uh, with the after-dinner brandy mm-hmm. with Lord Grantham prior to this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, of the upper class. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, right. Because Miss O'Brien. Yeah. I keep forgetting about her. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Back in the recap, <laughs> at dinner in Marmaduke House, <laughs> Lord Grantham says he feels guilty for not opening Grantham House. Uh, Rosamond says not to. She knows what a palaver it is. Yeah. Um, plus, she owes him for some vegetables that she's wiped. <laughs> Lord Grantham says more so now that they've got no real staff. McGee adds that almost everyone they know is selling their London house, but that's not for her to say. Uh, you know, they've always got a cash flow problem. Yeah. And they haven't stayed there yeah, and, since Rose's wedding. Right. And they don't have anybody coming out till Sibby. Like. Anyway. Edith says she went past the site of Devonshire House. I wonder if Sibby will be allowed to come out. Yeah, I don't know how. Anyway. Yeah. Edith says she went past the site of Devonshire House and there's something vast going up in its place. Yeah. And this was like a minor big deal at the time. This was sort of very symbolic of all the old 
townhouses that were getting destroyed mm-hmm. um like Siegfried Sassoon who was a major World War One era poet wrote a whole poem about you know the death of De- Devonshire House or whatever okay, yeah. good job Siegfried yeah a bell rings and Branson says that people don't want vast pa- palaces anymore even if they can afford them and Lord Grantham says oh they were fun though <laughs> I do like this happy-go-lucky Lord Grantham I, yeah me too do I think it's good storytelling absolutely not <laughs> but Hugh Bonneville is just a delight yeah uh he says, in his youth, all the hostesses laid luncheon for 20 every day. And if you turned up in time, you sat down for a lovely feed. Uh, and they all laugh as if that sort of thing isn't exactly why the Bolsheviks killed Nicholas II. Yeah. It was just like, oh, we're going to give lunch for 20 rich people, no matter how few of them show up. Mm-hmm. Poor people, you get nothing. Then Matthew Good walks in. Uh, okay. What? He says he's so sorry. He thought they'd be finished with dinner. Uh, Mary says that they should be. Rosamond says yeah. that they should be. And they'll go through unless the boys would rather stay and talk about racing cars. Ma- Matthew Good says that he would rather join the ladies. And Lord Grantham says, like Lord Byron? And I'm like, that isn't a compliment. <laughs> yeah. On you, any level. Right. And this is your daughter. Like, anyway. <sighs> boundaries people (laughs) matthew good thanks branson for rounding them all up branson says that he's as keen as matthew good is mary says that it's a bit obvious him showing up like that Mm -hmm. and matthew good hopes it is obvious that he wants to be part of this family what yeah like that's a bold statement it is and i mean i feel like they should have had way more fraught conversations about this yeah without i don't know maybe it's the you know the post-war thing and everybody's, you know, just saying what they mean now. But. I guess so. Mary asks if she has a say in the matter of him joining her family. And Matthew Good says that he wants to surround Mary with people murmuring, isn't he divine or you'd be mad to let him go. Or doesn't she have a son? <laughs> Mary asks what if they say, I should have thought a racing driver wasn't your sort of thing at all. Matthew Good says that they don't have to. Mary has already said it. That was solid response. Very there, solid yeah. response. Uh, Mary, who appears to be wearing pajamas in this scene, I did not like I this. I actually at liked all. her dress. Really? Okay. Yeah, I did. Well, 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 we agree to disagree. Yeah, sure. She says there's a long list of people coming tomorrow, and Matthew Good says to give him the list and he'll sort it out. Uh, I'm like, oh, so you've all just shown up without, like. <laughs> right. Although, really, I mean, the only person who wouldn't be on the list already is the editor. Yeah. Because Bertie was invited independently. Right. Agreed. I mean, I guess, you know, like, the servants, to the extent that they have to make space for them, I don't know. Matthew Good asks if she minds him inviting her family, and Mary says that she's here, isn't she? Which isn't exactly an answer. No. In the servants' hall, Carson asks Daisy if she's prepared for her exams, and she says she's done as much as she's able. Carson says, no one can say more. He says that he wasn't always sure, but now she's got this far. Well done. He wishes her good fortune. Patmore wonders where she'll go from here, uh, which I also wonder. Yeah. Because this is a lot of work to go through without... Anyway. Um. Step one. <laughs> underpants. <laughs> Step two. Question mark. Step three. Profit. About like that. Abba Hughes says Gwen's visit shows them that in the new century, anything is possible. Was it only Gwen's visit? Or was <laughs> it not the new century? That <laughs> you know, Gwen's visit, the war, the sinking of the Titanic, <laughs> the telephone. Wow. Progress. <laughs> Keeps chugging right along. It sure does. 
She asks if Mosley is ready. He says he's as ready as he'll ever be. And Patmore says she'll walk down with lunch for Mosley, Daisy, and Teach, uh, whose name is Mr. Dawes. We probably knew that at some point. Yeah, but I like to call him Teach. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to establish. Uh, Mosley says that she doesn't have to, but she says she wants to. And Andy, who is also there, says that he will give her a hand so that he can also be there at the picnic. <laughs> Hughes asks Thomas what he's doing tomorrow, and he says, scanning the jobs column, what else? <laughs> The editor walks along at Brooklyn's, amazed at the brave new world of the 1920s. She's come a long way, baby. <laughs> Edith waves her over, and at Matthew Good's car, Branson finishes up wrenching something and says Matthew Good is all set. Matthew Good says clearly they need Branson on their team. I like would the car have fallen apart had <laughs> this random, you know, rich mooch not showed up? It's hard to say. Anyway, he sees Edith and the editor, who Edith introduces as Laura Edmonds. She goes on to introduce her to Mary and her parents, as well as Mr. Rogers, who races on Matthew Good's team. This is, uh, what's his name? Charlie. Charlie, yeah. Rogers jokes that he beats Matthew Good every time, but Matthew Good says that he, Matthew Good, is faster, younger, and better. Uh, Rogers says, yeah, but not at racing. <laughs> oh. The clothes here are awful. Yeah. Like, there was a woman next to them during the actual race that I was like, she is better dressed than literally everybody who matters <laughs> on this show. Yeah. Branson wishes there was something he could do to be useful. Amen. <laughs> Matthew Good says just to cheer. It's the same advice Baron Fellows gave him at the beginning of the season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, aside at the catering table or something, Mary says that she doesn't know why she's getting food as she can't even swallow. Matthew Good says it's all terribly swank. Normally it's just an oil-stained sandwich and a bottle of pop. <gasps> pop? He's from Ohio. Well, the larger, you know, Midwest. Yeah, I know. But Good job. <laughs> uh, Mary's glad to think that they've brought an improvement there. Uh, yeah, there's a lobster on the table among many other fancy <laughs> things. So, yeah, that's an improvement. Edith and Bertie are walking through a crowd. Bertie says his train sat in a tunnel for an hour. But anyway, he's there now. Edith invites him to meet the editor back in the Crawley booth or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> no, because it is unclear. It's like, do they just like commandeer part of like the garage? Right. <laughs> yeah. Rosamond asks the editor if it's hard to be a woman editor. She says it's hard to be a woman anything that isn't domestic, but she does her best. Lord Grantham thinks it's courageous and good and is also not on his first drink anymore. <laughs> McGee says, heavens, Lord Grantham's conversion to the modern world is almost complete. But Edith says not to be deceived. He'd still like to see her and Mary happy wives and mothers. Uh, you know, he saw Sybil do that and it didn't work out great. So <laughs> yeah, maybe well, he'll come around on that too. Could be. Bertie says even leopards can change some of their spots. Lord Grantham agrees and says there's still some food. I would guess there is. There was an entire table full what of food. What I mean is like, oh, did you plan to, like, do you have to eat? Were they, okay, they were like, okay, you can bring in your own food, <laughs> but you have got to eat all of it before you leave. <laughs> That's right. Obscure Brooklyn's regulation. Uh, the editor and Branson hang at the back of the food line, and the editor says she's glad nobody's unhappy they hired a woman. And I'm like, it's not their newspaper. Right. For God's, or their magazine. Yeah. But, you know, maybe somebody, you know, could I have guess been so. like, ruff, 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 ruff. Branson says that she's an improvement on the last editor, and she's not the only one around there who's broken a few barriers. <sighs> Shut up, Branson. Like, the only barriers you've broken, you've spent the last 10 years painstakingly rebuilding. I'd also like to point out that they're clearly being set up to be in a relationship together because Baron Fellows 
really liked when Harry met Sally <laughs> and really doesn't think that men and women can just be friends. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and I mean, it would be one thing if any woman his age was ever introduced without like this coming up. Yeah, yeah. You know, he also has a daughter. Right. She's cool. Go play poo sticks. <laughs> be an adult. Uh, there's a PA announcement, and, and Matthew Good thinks he's being summoned, so Rogers calls him over. Matthew Good tells Mary that it means a lot that she came, and Mary hopes so because her digestive system has packed up completely. Super not interested in anybody's digestive system ever. Yeah. But especially on this show. Right. I mean, unless you're projectile vomiting blood, then that's at least Yeah, but that's not you talking about your digestive well, no, system. That's, right. that's, that's just, you know, <laughs> showing, not telling a major malfunction. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, Matthew Good says he'll be fine. She must credit him with some skill. And when he passes, he expects to see Mary cheer and wave. She asks if praying counts. Uh, Roger summons him again, and he kisses Mary and says that he should keep his spirit, and says that should keep his spirits up. He'll see her in a minute. I do not understand why she bothered coming. Uh, yeah. Like, she's just being unpleasant. Yeah, she is. And, like, I understand if it's, like, PTSD related. Right. But just don't do it. Yeah, I agree. But, you know. She's generally unpleasant. It's often her MO, so. Old timey race cars, <laughs> old timey racing gloves, an announcer specifically pointing out that they're all waiting on Matthew Good. <laughs> Rogers wishes Matthew Good luck. Uh, Matthew Good puts on his goggles. Everyone looks awful. Yeah. Matthew Good looks like a weird fetus. Yeah. Or something. He looks. He's wearing like a white jumpsuit and then like a, like a, white like a snood yeah yeah and the, you know those horrible racing goggles anyway yeah. not flattering for anyone so he puts those goggles on they all stand poised somebody waves a flag and they all run to the cars old tiny switches and handles turning on very uh imperator furiosa <laughs> people are applauding cars moving people looking some of them are standing in trees where are we now who knows now they're in some field uh, number six is in the lead. Boys run along. Now just a completely different angle. Birdie says, here they come. Where did they start at? <laughs> no one knows. Everybody leans over the railing as various indistinguishable cars race by. Uh, which one belongs to which driver? Who knows? No idea. Rosman makes some joke about how, I guess, Talbot is also the make of a car? Yeah, which it turns out it is. And the Wikipedia article has an amusing picture of an old guy sitting in a replica or like a restored Talbot thinking, I'm so rich and classy. And then the background is all just portable toilets. (laughs) (laughs) So all the cars come by and Mary's nervous. McGee asks, when will it be over? (laughs) Mary says, not soon. And then philosophically wonders what they get out of it branson kind of like unhelpfully says what do you think speed yeah i am i'm done with branson you guys no i know this episode just fucking put me over the oh when i first came to downtown i was just a chauffeur yeah I'm like, what do you love to be a chauffeur <laughs> yeah you hated the man that's right no and he's like don't tempt me into joining this world of cars like tempt you away from your current world of cars like what <laughs> <laughs> no and i did i also did really appreciate mcgee being the mom at the sporting event being like so is it still happening yeah is it what do the numbers mean like <laughs> I've been the mom at a sporting event since I was a wee child. (laughs) 
And now it's time for the second of our recurring segments, Tom Repeats History, with our resident racing raconteur, Tom. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so I just kind of looked up a little bit about auto racing in general and the history thereof up through uh, the time period in question. Uh, and it actually is older than you might think. The first recorded race of uh, self-powered road vehicles was in 1867. Holy in wow. Yeah. Uh, between two silly-sounding England English towns, it took place at 4:30 a.m. and little is known about it uh, because it was very much against the law at the time. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, uh, and the first auto race in America took place in 1878 in Wisconsin. Uh, it was organized by a newspaper there, uh, but these were all steam-powered cars, which was the you know first standard type. Uh, the first race. <laughs> There's the first race organized for gas-powered cars took place in 1887 uh, over two kilometers in France. It's debatable whether you can call it a race or say that it had a winner because only one person showed up to participate. <laughs> 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 so there's that. Uh, things really started to get going in the 1890s was when these took off, and primarily in France. France was really the center of auto racing in the, the early days. The illegal street races. You're not wrong. Uh, the first one is generally considered to be the Paris-Rouen race. Um, Rouen. That's, yeah, that's my attempt at that. Uh, in 1894. Uh, and it was the first one in America was in Chicago. The Chicago, one of the newspapers organized a race for Thanksgiving of 1895. And that one is actually credited with sort of waking up the American populace to the, like, the idea of cars as a thing that might be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, these road races in France were, became a big thing and they, they all tended to be of the form Paris to X. Uh, and sometimes a back. So there was the Paris-Bordeaux-Paris race and various other things, uh, including kind of culminating in the 1908 New York to Paris auto race, Ooh. Uh, which inspired a movie that I like to an odd degree, The Great Race by Blake Edwards, uh, which was the original plan was actually that they were going to go from New York to San Francisco, uh, take a boat up to Valdez in Alaska, cross Alaska a little bit, and then a boat over to Siberia. But it turned out they simply could not function in Alaska. So they redirected down to uh, Japan and China and then up through Russia and on the rest of the planned route. Okay. Uh, however, road racing started to become less popular in Paris itself uh, because these were just races on, you know, roads. These were not like racetracks. These were not anything else. Uh, and in the 1903 Paris to Madrid race, which things had already started getting dangerous by just having auto races just around. And the French authorities really didn't want to allow this. But the King of Spain at the time was super into the Paris-Madrid race. And all the auto manufacturers were always trying to push these because they were all the best advertisements Mm -hmm. for their cars. These were... What we see in Downton is kind of the very last era in which cars and car races were just cars like Mm -hmm. ordinary cars that you would buy at a dealership yeah Uh, they didn't have specialized racing cars and that started in the 30s uh but so the paris madrid race they finally convinced them to let it go on uh and it did not go well there was and it was a whole weird thing too because everywhere you went there wasn't good communications so you everywhere you went (laughs) there'd be like rumors that like people had been killed in an accident but maybe they didn't and all this sort of thing uh, and, uh, Reynal, 
the uh, founder of the company, was killed in this race, Mm -hmm. uh, along with what turned out to be a total of eight people, uh, five racers and three driver or three like pedestrians Mm -hmm. uh, were killed when the cars kind of veered into them. And it was like people just didn't really understand the way cars worked at this point. They would just Mm -hmm. stand in the middle of the road and like get out of the way at the last second, but they weren't good at judging the last second. And so some of the lead drivers were starting to slow down to try to like give people more time to get out of the way but the people were just like great i have longer before i have to get out of the way and it just wow it was real bad and it wound up getting stopped that car race in greece seem really responsible (laughs) yeah it wound up they wound up just stopping it when it got to bordeaux they're like you know what uh you've killed enough Mm -hmm. car race and yeah uh so brooklyn's was built in 1907 uh you know, partly as the result of all these deaths in normal races, but it was it was the first purpose built auto racing track. Oh, anywhere? Yeah. Um it was and it inspired and was shortly followed by the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was nineteen oh nine that it opened. Uh and which has the largest seating capacity of any stadium in the world. Oh. Yeah. Uh but Brooklyn's uh did not, from what I can tell, look much like what we see on Downton, the primary difference being that all the curves were very highly banked. Mm. Um, and there was actually, there was a line running down the middle where, in, you know, in theory, if you were going at top speed, you wouldn't have to use the steering wheel. It would just, like, the banking would just guide you around the curve the right way. Um, so, yeah, we certainly didn't see any banking uh, on the curves in this one. So, boo. Uh, but the other thing that was going on was that as of 1903, England had established a flat period 20 mile per hour speed limit everywhere. Uh, and the English car manufacturers were worried that the French, uh, car manufacturers would like get ahead of them in technology because I guess in France you could just do whatever the hell you wanted from what of- Like the Audubon. Right. It seemed to be that way. Uh, and so the English, the English car manufacturers were like, we need to be able to do high speed testing. So that's, that's what Brooklyn's was open for. Uh, and it also became a center of aviation research and training and that mm. sort of thing. Uh, so when uh, World War One broke out, it was closed to auto racing and turned over entirely to the Air Force, which wasn't called the Air Force then. I mean, I guess just the military and they mm-hmm. tested planes there. Uh, we're also seeing the last year before Grand Prix racing started in Brooklyn. So that started in 1926. So I, I really couldn't get a sense. This this race would have been just sort of a random let's have a race thing. Yeah. Like it wouldn't have been part of an organized series or anything like that from everything I can tell. And actually what was more common and the first race they had there would be a 24 hour race. How far can you go in 24 hours? Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, they'd have specially designed, you know, gas tanks and everything like that. And they had red lights around the track so that they could go the full 24. Yeah, and that's about it. Uh, women weren't allowed to race there even for a while, of course, even though some of them were quite successful. Um, the, in early car racing days, women did very well and were, were a part of it. Mm-hmm. But you know how it is. They, uh, quickly got shoved out. Yeah. Much like the early days of Hollywood mm-hmm. when there were a lot of women. Like, yep. Running yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty much the same in car racing. Uh, so, you know, bummer. Indeed. Yeah. Patriarchy hurts us all. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, auto racing did many things after that, but that is not the point of this show. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. You're welcome. And now we're out on a lawn. 
Teach is thanking Patmore for the picnic, and she's annoyed that she forgot the lemonade. But Thomas walks up. He brought the lemonade. Hey. hey. Mrs. Patmore thanks him, and Thomas sits down and asks how everybody did on their exams. Molesley says he doesn't know yet. Teach says that Molesley will know soon, but Daisy will have to wait a while. She says she's got three more papers to do after lunch. Andy asks if it was harder than she thought. Daisy hands the test to him and says number two threw her for a loop. Mrs. Patmore, like, this is so clunky. <laughs> yeah. Like, they might as well have had a script fall on her head followed by an anvil. <laughs> Mrs. Patmore asks Andy to read it out. Uh, it's so awkward. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like that episode of Step by Step where JT had dyslexia. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Thomas says he will read it. Uh, instead of Andy, and Daisy's like, why? He can read it. Andy starts sounding out Tsar Nicholas so badly that it took all the way until he said, you know, Nicholas for me to know. <laughs> yeah. Thomas takes it and reads out the question. Andy then frustratedly says he can't read. Thomas has been trying to teach him, but he, Andy, is too stupid to learn. Daisy says not to say that, but Andy says that he is a fool who knows nothing and is nothing. And sure. I mean, I think that's perhaps a bit much. <laughs> I mean, you know, just be a footman then. Well, right. Don't keep trying to be a pig man. <laughs> pig man got to read. That's true. You wouldn't have thought, but, you know, you, how are you ever going to know their ways if you can't read about them? <laughs> Pigs. <laughs> Cars. Still driving. One of them had radiator trouble, I guess. And some announcer who can apparently see all is describing all of this. Uh, so various shots of cars, which may or may not be passing each other. Uh, they go past the stands again, and Branson asks if they envy them. Edith doesn't, and Bertie doesn't either, and says they'll have to keep an eye on Branson. Please don't. Yeah, just let him Let wand- him go. Yeah, let him wander into traffic. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Grantham says there's something gallant and daring in it. Even I can see that. Which, okay. Yeah. And just, yeah. The, just, the shots here are terrible. Yeah, like... Like, they again, were like, oh, we could hire somebody to direct these. Who knows anything about action. Well, it's a car race cut that's supposed to be very thrilling, right? Yeah, I would think. Cut against this bucolic, this bucolic <laughs> picnic. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And just the... You never know which car is which or who's where or anything like that. Like, they're all very pretty. Like, any given frame is very shiny and, you know, Chrome. whatever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they Literally. But you just never know what's going yeah. on in this race. It's like the fight sequences in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies where mm. you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Back at the illiteracy picnic, Teach says he could help Andy if he'd like. Mrs. Patmore says that's very kind. And Andy says he's tried, but he can't break through. He's too stupid. Daisy tells him to stop saying that, for God's sake. Yeah. Teach says that he's not stupid and he can soon have Andy reading for pleasure if he comes by two or three times a week after school. Andy says that's the best time for him, even though <laughs> don't you need to be getting ready for dinner? No. Nope. He doesn't Teach have to be doing anything. It won't stay long, and Thomas says that they can keep going on with, but Teach cuts him off and says they don't want to confuse Andy with different methods or your penis. <laughs> Thomas says, of course not, and Molesley says Daisy'd better get back to work. Thomas asks if they need any help, but Andy says he can manage. So, uh, I guess your planned obsolescence is right on schedule, Barrow. Yeah. Oof. It's tough. No, and that's the thing I'd say about it, you know, like, he hasn't done anything terrible in, like, a year. And the last terrible things he did were all to Baxter, and she doesn't seem to dislike him, so... Right? Anyway. I mean, she's a great judge of character. <laughs> right. 
in the library, Hugh says it's funny when the house is empty, and Carson says it's all the more reason for them to be vigilant against communists. What? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh suggests they They're sit. They're everywhere. <laughs> Hugh suggests they sit down on you know the family couch by the fireplace, and Carson's hesitant, but Hugh says, "Oh, just for a moment." Carson reluctantly joins her, uh, and Hugh says it's nice, and they don't live badly. You have to concede that. Carson says they live as they're supposed to live. It has burdens and benefits. Hugh says, well, it's better than just burdens. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what we have. (laughs) Right. Uh, Anyway, she hopes Carson's ready for tonight. For once, they can eat when civilized people eat. Carson asks if she's sure she knows how to cook it. Uh, dude. Yeah. Uh, Hughes, with the (laughs) teeth-gritting way that we've gotten used to over the past couple of weeks, says that uh, she's been over every detail with Miss Patmore. Uh, they lean back on the couch, but then Thomas comes in and they get up all awkward and embarrassed. Thomas says, oh, what's all this? Can anyone join in? And Carson says, no, and walks out. I mean, you could just do it, Thomas. No, I know. They're not going to come back. Right. Not for 15 minutes at least. <laughs> cars! More cars! Some car we know nothing about pulls over. Right. And Matthew Good and Rogers are racing for the lead. Matthew Good smiles at Rogers when he passes him, but then Rogers takes the lead again and people cheer them on. Mary turns away, Branson says. It won't be long now. Mary says it feels like they're trapped for all eternity by a witch's curse. <laughs> yeah. There's a crash off in the distance. Branson takes Birdie off to investigate. Mary and Edith follow. But McGee won't let McGee go. Anna goes for some reason. Right. Despite Bates' attempt to stop her in her condition and then asks Baxter to follow her. Because I guess his limp is back. Right. But it's just like, why? What? You don't even like that guy, Anna. I, I know. But, you know, her mistress is in uh, need, I suppose. You know, she might need to change into her crying dress. <laughs> Medium smart. Uh, so a car is on fire and people are milling around, and it is Rogers' car, which should not be a surprise to anyone. <laughs> Matthew Good runs up and tries to pull him out, but is dragged away. Which is good, because the car is seriously on yeah, fire. Yeah, it's completely on fire. There was no way that he could have helped. Um, so the family arrives. Bertie comes up and tells them that it was Charlie Rogers. Uh, Mary is relieved, and then we see Matthew Good walking through the smoke, looking, you know, stricken, as he should be. Back at the grandstand, Matthew Good is sitting on the ground smoking. Mary walks up to him. No word on whether he was in the war, was there? Not that I recall, no. We might have missed it, but we don't know what his, you know, military status was. Mary walks up to him and he says that Rogers was his friend, his best friend really, which sounds like something from a Ryder Haggard novel. Uh, I don't know who that is. He was a Pulp Fiction guy, wrote uh, like King Solomon's Mines and uh, She, which was... uh, like a book about a mysterious female, like, goddess slash something in the jungle. Okay. Yeah, she who must be obeyed. Um, oh, me. Right. Um, I don't know why he's not allowed to just say he had a best friend. Right. Like, no, I was also like, that seems perfectly fine, dude. Anyway, he keeps asking himself if he encouraged him, and Mary says, of course he did, and Rogers encouraged Matthew Good. He says he needled him and pushed him, and Mary says that he did the same, and if Matthew Good had died, Rogers would be asking the same questions. Matthew Good says that he didn't die, and Rogers did. And he apologizes, but Mary shakes her head, and she says that the family are going. Rosamond didn't want to cancel dinner. She thinks they should all be together. It's like, you didn't know him. Right. Matthew Good says he can't go to dinner anymore because he has to deal with Charlie's family. Uh, and Mary's like, oh, yeah, duh. Yeah. <laughs> 
He tells Mary to thank Rosamond. He starts to say something else, but Mary says they shouldn't do any of that stuff now, which is interesting. I don't think she's ever said stuff. Yeah. And walks off. Yeah. Like, okay, Rosamond. I I don't know. I mean, it's a weird situation for her to be in. Yeah. You know. It's, it's like, like, oh, we were all going to have a good time, but like, now we're not. Right. Somebody I don't know died, and he was best friends with somebody who I basically also don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Teach walks up to Downton, and in the kitchen, Patmore asks if Mosley passed, and Teach says that he'd be very glad if Mosley would join the teaching staff. I guess there was no certifications at the time. Uh, Mosley is shaken, but thanks Teach for telling him, and Patmore asks if this means he'll be a teacher now and not a servant, and Daisy asks, when will he be leaving? Teach says to give him a moment. He says that he is impressed. There are Oxbridge graduates who knew far less than him, and he should be proud. Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, they're getting gentlemen seas and drinking themselves mm-hmm. to death. So oh, that yeah. makes sense. He goes to leave. Mosley thanks him. Andy says, well done. And Mosley says, you'll be next. Uh, Andy doubts it. Uh, I we can probably learn to read, but he, he's also not necessarily. He's going to be a pig man. Yeah. Less. He set himself an attainable dream. Throw out the pig man. <laughs> throw out the pig man. Someone is pigging away. <laughs> Patmore says they should celebrate. There's a bottle of wine in the kitchen, if Carson wouldn't mind. And Daisy asks if this is the end of service for Mosley. Is this the end of fetch? <laughs> he says service is ending for most of them. He just got a head start. Daisy asks if he'll miss it. He says he was never going to make butler anyway, and from now on, there's going to be more people chasing fewer jobs, so it's probably time. Daisy's glad and says he deserves it. Mosley says he never thinks he deserves anything. Perhaps he's been wrong all along. Does that mean that Thomas is, like, first footman now? Or something? Hard to say. Well, I mean, doesn't it mean that now the spot that they wanted to open up, like, or, you know, reduce? Oh, yeah. Like, so That's shouldn't- true. Shouldn't Thomas not be fired now? You would think. You like, would think. He can't possibly make that much more than Molesley. Right. Andy asks if Thomas is coming to the kitchen, and he says in a minute, and he sits alone and watches them all celebrating. Aw. Yeah, it's sad. At Carson Cottage, Carson asks Mrs. Hughes how she did it. Mrs. Hughes, who has a bandage on her wrist that wasn't there before, says she must have stumbled and fallen over in the wrong way, uh, which is a pretty lame excuse. Yeah. She says she'll go to the doctor in the morning if it's no better, and Carson asks how she's going to cook, and she says she can't. She can't lift anything. But it's very simple, and she'll talk him through it. And Carson says, you mean I'm going to cook? (laughs) She says it's very straightforward and gives him, like, eight different instructions while she's laughing. This is great. It is great. This is a really good solution to this problem. Yes, it really is. At Marmaduke House, it is a quiet dinner. It's quiet at Marmaduke House. (laughs) Yeah. They all, of course, change into their fancy clothes. Oh, yeah. Well, you can't grieve wearing what you wore at the time of death. Right. Rosamond assumes they're all done eating. Editor says that one talks of risk and danger, and it sounds fun, but the reality is sudden death. Mary says sudden, stupid, wasteful death. Mary is, like, catatonic for Mary. Yeah. Uh, Lord Grantham says it was a bloody awful business. Bloody, bloody awful. Rosamond says, well, the English language never lets you down. And he says, shut up, Rosamond. Which is the appropriate response. It really is. Come on, Rosamond. There, at times like this, there's nothing really to say. Like, like the, I know that your whole job is to be, you know, the, uh, oh, what's her name from The Simpsons? The one who's like, I hope I attempt to destroy her. She didn't take my attempt to destroy her too seriously. Yeah. Anyway. 
It's not Robert Ta. Right, which is all I can think of now. Yeah. Anyway, don't worry about <laughs> it. Rick G suggests they go through... Susan. Susan's her name. <laughs> yes. Uh, and tells Lord Grantham that he is going to bed. Rosamond says she is too, and the rest of them can stay up. Bertie asks if he should go, and Edith says, no, not yet. Stay and have a drink. Branson tells Mary that Matthew Good is on the phone. Math- Mary says to tell him to call tomorrow, but Branson thinks she should speak to him. Who died and made you, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker, Branson? I don't know. Oh, it was Matthew, the first Matthew. Yeah, that's true. Matthew Good is drinking. Mary says he should try and sleep. Matthew Good says he found he needed to hear her voice first. And he won't sleep until he knows where they're headed. Like, as a couple. Mary says not to do this now. She's also standing next to this crazy sphinx statue. I miss that. Yeah, no, it was like, it was a very prominent breasted oh yeah okay yeah she says to think of charlie and not her and him he says to hear him out and charlie would have and i'm like well you weren't trying to marry charlie (laughs) wasn't he (sighs) he said that charlie's death made him realize that they don't have a moment to lose so this is his carpe diem moment mary says no Matthew Good asks what she means. Mary says she didn't want to say it now uh, in the wake of your friend's death, which has obviously caused you to lose your mind. Yeah. But she's also realized something and they're not meant to be together and not to start saying he'll give up racing because she doesn't want him to give up anything except for her. He says he can't give her up. I don't. What? How can they possibly have this depth of feeling right now? He's never going to give her up. He's never going to let her down. She wishes him nothing but good, Matthew good, (laughs) and she wants him to have a long and happy life, and Branson strolls by to eavesdrop on this highly private conversation. Yup. Matthew good says not to do this. She says that she must and says goodnight. Branson says that he wishes she wouldn't break up with Matthew good because they were just becoming best bros. (laughs) Mary says the worst thing is when they said Charlie was dead, she was glad. Yeah, of course you were. Right. Everybody's always glad that the person they care about more isn't dead. Yeah. Branson says she's not seeing straight and today brought up Matthew's death and she's in a black mist. (laughs) Mary says it's not what she wants. Branson says she's frightened of being hurt again, but he says she will be hurt again. And so will he. Will you? Because you seem like Teflon these days, bucko. Right. Because being part, uh, being hurt is part of being alive. All right. Thanks for reading from your teenage diary, Branson. Shark, shark, shark. That's just the rest of it. <laughs> but that's no reason to give up on the man who is right for her. So, so Charles Blake? Yeah, yeah. I think that. They had that whole thing with those pigs. Right. Man, Julian Ovenden. They're his pigs. <laughs> I'm so mad that he left. I know. I know he had to go play the captain in, you know, Sound of Music Live or whatever, but. <laughs> uh, anyway, Mary stumbles away. At Carson Cottage, Carson is flustered. He apologizes for being behind and says the potatoes may have caught. And they are black. Yeah. Hughes asks about the cauliflower. Carson runs over and burns his finger on the pot. Hughes tells him to put the apple crumble in the oven and laughs silently at his dismay. (laughs) In the kitchen, Mrs. Patmore says it was a good day, and Daisy says she actually wound up enjoying the test, and she's glad it turned well for Molesley. Mrs. Patmore says it'll probably turn out well for Andy, too. Daisy supposes so, even if he just wants to learn about farming for Mr. Mason. Mrs. Patmore says Daisy must share, and that if Mr. Mason makes new friends, it doesn't mean he'll have less love for her, Daisy says, doesn't it? She says she's never had much that was her own. 
Mrs. Patmore says she's found the love of the father there and she can count on him just as she can count on Patmore. And I had forgot. I was like, does Daisy even have a family? Right. And we looked up and she had one line about how she never had a father not like that. Yeah. Implying that it was not a good father. Yeah. Carson Cottage, she says the crumble is good, actually. Her mother's was always a bit soggy. Uh, but Carson is asleep. So Hughes kind of taps her spoon against the plate to wake him up. And Carson starts up and is like, oh, we're done now, finally? Uh, Hughes says, yeah, just put things into soak and cover the pots with water. And he doesn't have to do the washing up until morning if he'd rather. Carson asks, won't she be better by morning? And she says, oh, not for that. <laughs> <laughs> They could ask Billy to come over. Who's but Billy? Uh, there know. was a Billy at the racetrack. Is it him? <laughs> yeah, that's him. That's what he does. Time cars and wash dishes. <laughs> uh, but he's got his own work to do. Timing cars. Uh, she asks if Carson minds, and he says, no. In the upstairs hall at Marmaduke House, Anna sees Baxter and hopes she's ready for bed. Baxter looks hesitant, and Anna asks what it is. Baxter explains that she... <laughs> i really gotta read these baxter explains that she's been cursed never to sleep but wandered the halls endlessly looking for her lost plot line they say i had a conflict once (laughs) okay really she says she's just wondering if she's right that anna is to be congratulated and anna says it's a bit early but yes baxter's happy for her and it's good to think of a new life coming on a day like this Anna says goodnight. In her room, she sees Bates and says he's stretched out like a pasha. Uh, great. It, he's lying in bed, but all right. Bates says it's an early night for him because Lord Grantham went to bed right after dinner. Anna says not for her. Uh, Mary is very codependent because <laughs> of the crash. And then she broke up with Matthew Good. Bates wouldn't have thought it was the right night for that decision. Anna said Mary says that she's sure. Bates asks Anna if, she, if Anna thinks that she's right. Anna says probably... Bates says there's no more to be said. Anna sighs. What? what? Could we not have just, like, cut that whole last part? It was perfectly fine. Yeah, I agree. In the drawing room, Edith is leaning on Bertie on the couch. He supposes he should go. Edith says he's been such a help and that it's odd. They witnessed a tragedy today. But sitting there with his arm around her, she can't remember feeling so comfortable. Bertie says that makes him feel happy if it isn't wrong to feel happy on a day like this. Edith doesn't think it's ever wrong to feel happy and confident in someone's company. Bertie asks why she says that. Edith says it's not a trap. The day has been sad and wretched, and Bertie has helped her face it. Bertie says the thing is, he'd like to be trapped, and he'd better just say it. He wants to marry her. <gasps> what? No. Edith sits up and says, oh. Bertie asks if she's offended, and she says, why would she be? She's thrilled. She's delighted. She's just surprised. Bertie says that she's known that he's mad about her. And Edith says that she doesn't ever think she's the sort of girl men are mad about. Bertie says she's wrong because he is. He knows he hasn't got much to offer, and Lord Grantham is probably hoping for more than a penniless land agent. But if love is allowed to count, he's got plenty of that. Edith says that she must ask him something. Would he let her bring Marigold? He says, your family is ward? Right? Edith says that she's much fonder of Marigold than the others are and would hate to leave her behind. Bertie's like, well, if she means that much to you, though, of course, he hopes that they will have their own children before close of play. I like Bertie. Yeah, me too. Edith would like that too. Bertie asks if that means she accepts, and Edith says, not quite. She's sorry to be a killjoy, but she must think about it. Bertie says to go ahead. He won't marry anyone else, at least not until after she's broken his heart. 
He's so cute. He's very cute. I want to marry Birdie. Yeah. No, and it's just, it's very, like, the way the tone is, it's very, like, not, it's not, like, too, it's making very clear how much he wants her to say yes, but it's, like. He's like, I see your boundaries, yo. Yeah, exactly. He says he'll go, and Edith says to kiss her first, and she promises she won't keep him waiting too long, and they kiss. At the Patmore B&B, Patmore's niece hands her some plates, which she takes into the couple that's staying. She says that she has to go, but her niece will see to everything. Patmore walks out, and some weirdo in the bushes with a camera uh, writes something down. So yeah. this does not bode well for anyone or anything or any plot. Yeah. Like... Can she not just open her B&B and just be left in peace? Yeah. Like, maybe her niece isn't great at it or something. Yeah. I don't know. Out front of Downton, the family have returned. Carson says that Isabel is waiting in the library. She wouldn't say why, but she seems eager to see them. He adds that Spratt rang to ask when they'd be returning. Lord Grantham doesn't remember who a Spratt is, and Lord and uh, Carson explains. And he's like, oh, that Mr. Pratt. Or Spratt, as if he knows so many Spratts. He might. He might. Lord Grantham asks what he wanted, and Carson says, again, no explanation was proffered. What a confusing day. Yeah. Lord Grantham says, curiouser and curiouser. See, these are them pop culture references. Mm-hmm. That one, the Lord Byron thing, like, quit it. Sorry. In the library, he hopes they haven't kept as Isabel waiting for hours, and Isabel says it's her fault for arriving too early, and asks how it was. McGee says, perfectly terrible, but let's not go into that. Isabel says, oh, well, she's sorry, and she actually feels rather awkward. She has a letter from the Dowager, and hands it to Lord Grantham, who asks why the Dowager didn't bring it herself. Isabel says it's because she's gone away. Edith asks where. Isabel says the Mediterranean. McGee says it's her. The Dowager is furious with her. Isabel doesn't see the point of bringing any of that of that up now, meaning yes. Um... Mary asks what it says in the letter. Lord Grantham says nothing much. She needs a change of air, and Spratt is bringing a present. Carson walks in and says that Spratt has arrived. Within 30 seconds? He, uh, They drive her back to the dower house. (laughs) Look, when Spratt wants to move, he can move. (laughs) Carson says that Spratt is in the servants' hall. He brought a present and didn't want to bring it up there. Lord Grantham asks what's going on. Carson says that Spratt may be right. Branson says they should go down and see it. And Lord Grantham says, all right, but it all seems very rum to him. Ooh, rum. (laughs) Downstairs, Lord Grantham asks what the surprise is, and Hughes says he'll soon see, but she thinks it's a good one. Spratt greets Lord Grantham. Lord Grantham's like, what's going on? (laughs) And uh, Spratt says that the dowager chose her herself and the servants part from around the table to reveal (gasps) a puppy! A new puppy! Yeah. Lord Grantham is delighted, and he says, hello, little one. Again, Hugh Bonneville, puppies, children, <laughs> oh, all the time. And the puppy was gnawing on its basket. Oh, my God, it was amazing. So he picks her up, and he decides he'll call her uh, Tio. And Edith says she thought they always had names from ancient Egypt. Lord Grantham says she was the wife of Amenhotep II and the father of Thutmose the Fourth, uh, and basically calls Edith stupid. <laughs> yeah. Spratt says, not knowing the family of the various Thutmoses. Spratt says that Tia. Tio? It's spelled T-I-A-A, but he seemed to be pronouncing it Tio. Okay. So. Tio is not exactly trained yet, which is why he didn't bring her up. Lord Grantham says that he doesn't care about that. She's coming upstairs with him. Yes, to pee on all of his priceless possessions. McGee seems just as delighted as LG, by the way. Yeah. No, well, now he'll have a hobby again. <laughs> right. 
Hughes and Patmore head out in the hall. Hughes asks how Patmore's guests were. Patmore says the man is a doctor, so she doesn't think she could have started better, even if she worked harder over their breakfast than anything she's done since Rose's wedding. Patmore asks if Carson survived his ordeal, and Hughes says, put it this way, he has discovered a new respect for the role of cook and bottle washer, so I think he'll be giving less trouble in the future. They both laugh. Then Carson comes in and asks, what's so funny? And Hughes says, just life, Mr. Carson, just life. And Carson's like, no, it isn't, and walks out. (laughs) (laughs) The end. Yeah. Yeah, next week. (gasps) Oh, man. Like, not to bury the lead, Lady Edith is going to call Mary a bitch finally. Yeah. Like, to her face. That's right. Uh, I don't see how that could be confusing in any way. <laughs> right. Uh, there's some kind of scandal with Mrs. Patmore right. and her thing. Um, I don't remember anything else. There was like... Oh, Matthew Good calls Mary a... Gold digger. A, gold, a yeah. money-grubbing gold digger or at or least she says he calls yeah. her that. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah. he's not gone. No. Even though she broke up with him. So. No. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to the Abbey Awards. Hooray. Kick it off with worst decision goes to... Uh, Charlie Rogers. Yeah, perhaps for starting car racing in the first place. Um, or whatever decision it was that led to your fiery yeah. death. We don't know what it was, but it can't get any worse than that. Absolutely not. Next up, we have Best Evasion. That goes to the Dowager Countess. That is a masterful plan. Yeah. Well executed. It came with a puppy. That's right. She evaded with puppy. <laughs> like, that is one of the best evasions we've ever seen. Yeah. Really well done. Here, here. Next up, we have Worst Overbite. I mean, clearly, Miss Crookshank. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Miss Crookshank. Like, we ought to, you know, we ought to do at some point, like, the definitive, like... <laughs> The overbite rankings. The oh, well, and I mean, we'll just all of these. Yeah, you know, yeah. Who, who are the cumulative oh, the winners? The final, yeah, the, the grand final prize, the final tally. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah. she is right up there. Yeah. With Larry Gray. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. No, uh, it was so satisfying. <laughs> Next, we have the Gibson girl for the best dressed, and that will go to the editor, Miss Edwards Edmonds. <laughs> Sorry. We're doing great. We are. Miss Edmonds, uh, now yeah, she's very stylish. Mm-hmm. She was wearing spectacles in public, which we've not seen uh, from a single young woman right. on this show. Yeah. Even the homely liberal mm-hmm. appeared to have corrective lenses in her eyes. Per- perfectly comfortable in different environments. Yes. I liked, I don't remember it well, but I feel like I liked her dress in the last dinner scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well done. Next up, we have the Fashion Backwards Award for Backwards Fashion, a.k.a. the Backy. Uh, this is going to Matthew Good. Yeah. We almost gave this one to Charlie Rogers, but we were like, it doesn't seem right to give this <laughs> to somebody who died. Right. But just like his horrible outfit. Like, yeah. he just, he looks like a, like a sperm or something. Yeah, just he awful. just looks, yeah, bad, inhuman. Like, and like, just... how do you make Matthew Good look bad? Yeah. His name is Matthew Good. <laughs> right. <laughs> so step it up. Step it up, Henry Talbot. Here, here. Next up, we have Cutest Baby. And that goes to uh, Tio. Yes, because there were no human babies in this episode because they don't matter. Right. This is true, but that was an actual baby. and uh, Such a cute baby. Super cute. And finally, the Maggie Smith scale of Maggie Smith. Uh, We've got another five, ladies and gentlemen. We do have another five. This five makes the previous five look like a pale imitation of a five. (laughs) Yeah. But this is so great. I mean, you know, again, one of our favorite scenes from her. I mean, this is like season one Dowager Countess at her finest. Yeah. So, really well done. Thanks for giving that to us. Agreed. Uh, We loved it. Mm -hmm. No, it's just like the whole season, at least there was one 
impeccable Maggie Smith scene in it. Maybe there will be another one there next week. May may well be. I mean, everybody else is using swear words. That's right. Although she may not even be in the episode if she's in. She's going to stay for a month. E. Yeah. Well, I don't know what'll happen. <laughs> if she's not in the episode. We can't give out the Maggie Smith award of Maggie Smith. No, it's, it'll break the scale. Oh my god! All right. Yeah. Well, we're all going to get through this together. <laughs> so until next time. Up yours downstairs, luncheon out.